Well, good morning. It's good to be back home. It's always interesting saying that. We were in California, so uh, I might be from there, but no longer home. Amen? Oh, yeah. You're, you're, that's funny. You sound that really reverent. Uh, we got to be in California with our whole family, and uh, we got to watch our oldest daughter graduate from college. That's awesome. Um, and that means, if you put the math together, I'm four years older. I don't think I realized that until um, afterwards. Uh, we got to be together. It was a great time, um, but it's always great to be back, and it's just something about that. Now, Trisha had a really cool role. She got to, to be the, the benediction prayer you know, at the end, so it was awesome because she was on stage with all these PhDs and people in robes and there she was. Now, an interesting factoid that Trisha actually prayed for my, also the ceremony I got my master's in, but tripped on the way up. Um, and so people said, is that your wife? I said, I don't know who she is. I don't, I don't, no, I didn't do that. Uh, but she did a great job. It was just awesome to be uh, there uh, with our family, but we're back. And uh, I'm excited about this series. This morning, one of our daughters, Jacqueline, came back from college, so she's here. Um, she's not the one that graduated, but she's a year away from that. But she told me a story this morning I thought was interesting. She was talking about a Christmas pageant. And this little boy, and you guys have seen Christmas pageants. They reenact the whole manger scene and the, and the wise men. And so, you know, obviously there's, well, we don't know how many wise men, but the story says three. And and they bring gifts. And this boy had the, the role of being one of the wise men that brought frankincense. And so, you know, the, the room fills and they go through this pageant. And this little boy walks up to the manger Jesus and kneels down and said, Frank sends this. I laughed, and I really seriously heard that on the car, in the car on the way here, and said, uh, I think that's part of the struggle in Christmas. We quickly go through tradition so much that we miss the depth of really what it means. As simple as it sounds is frankincense or Frank send this, we can miss the depth and perspective of what it meant to have a Messiah show up on earth a God with us. And this morning I want to unpack and maybe address some of us glossing over very quickly something that's so powerful in Scripture and this concept that Jesus meets us in our desperation. I want to talk about this word desperation. And I want to move past maybe just how we quickly think through that. I want to ask you the question, when was the last time you were desperate? So this week, I received a text uh, from John Dixon, our friend from Australia, saying, uh, pray for us. There are about 30 people in a cafe right next to Sydney Harbor um, with a terrorist. It's, it's in these moments that I quickly look to the, the news and the media to see these people's hands on the window thinking, what would I be thinking? I mean, what would you be thinking, hands in the window, would you be thinking about, crud, I did not clean the house for Christmas dinner? Would you be thinking about vacations or how much is in your checking account? Would you think about, 
the car you drive, what needs to be cleaned. I mean, what would you really be thinking about? Psychologists say that when we hit those points in life, those moments of what's called ultimate desperation, we get whittled down to what matters most. I, I can't even imagine that moment of, I'm not sure if the next 60 seconds, if I have them, what would you be thinking? In these moments of desperation, we find ourselves moving away from things that are good things. They're not bad things, but we get a lot deeper, don't we, very quickly. The picture of this woman now running into the arms of safety, but the face says it all, doesn't? Desperation. Being desperate. The word desperation is all throughout your Bible. And, and more than just the word, there are pictures of desperation. There are stories of desperation. And you'd be hard-pressed to find a page in your Bible from Genesis to Revelation that doesn't paint a story or a picture of men and women who found themselves hands pressed on the window. Now what? And I want to talk about that this morning because I think we could so quickly move to Christmas and lose sight of a world that was in desperate need of a Messiah. Desperation means a loss of hope and surrender to despair. Now in your Bible, one of the sins that you'll find in there is despair. Didn't know that until uh, about a year or two ago. That despair is actually a sin. The reason is because you have abandoned all hope. And we know that as Christ followers, we are to embrace and realize the reality of, of surrendering our lives to Christ means God is not only with us, but he's in us. The Spirit invades our lives and he's a deposit in our lives. And that is to be the hope. That is to be the thing when hands are pressed on the window no matter what it feels like, is that I have that. That's where you hear Paul talking about, you could chain me up and throw me in jail. You could beat me, and I'm, I have this hope. You, you, you can let me run with the rich and, and have all the, the things of life, but I still have this hope. No matter what you do to Paul, he is still in that place of hope. Desperation really in some ways tests the viability of our hope. Another way to say it or define it is a state of hopelessness leading to rashness. And this is where in a place of desperation we find ourselves making a lot of times bad decisions. We see this in a lot of our crime. A lot of our crime is, is a result of someone desperate. Whether it's for money, whether it's for love, whether it's for attention. And we find people making choices and rash decisions. And so... This idea of desperation is in Scripture, but I want to paint two different types of desperation this morning that are very real and, and they're very biblical. There's what I would call small d desperation. Small d desperation deals with what we experience and feel from our physical world around us. Another way to say this would be is me feeling the weight of not having enough money to pay bills. Desperation, physical desperation not feeling loved, 
feeling the sense of my health is limited. Let's say I, I have cancer. Some, I know some of our church members are working through that journey and, and given a time to live. That would be small d desperation. I want to say I'm not minimizing that desperation. I'm not minimizing the feeling or the weight of what that would feel like. It'd be the loss of a loved one. It could be the loss of a child. Received a phone call Friday night from the Brown County Sheriff's Department because they had responded that day to an infant that had died. And so we gathered Saturday morning just to talk through the the reality of what that would feel like as first responders to what they saw. That would be small d desperation. And again, not to minimize what that would feel like to people, but that is what we experience on this earth. And I'm sure in this room we've all had levels of what we would call desperation. But in spiritual terms, there's a different desperation that often God is pushing us towards. And that is what's called capital D or large D desperation. That is the desperation is what we understand as our spiritual condition and our need for God. When was the last time you felt desperate for him? I want to dive into this story that we we read this morning, but I want us to hold this picture of that there's a God that loves us enough to meet our small d desperation, but ultimately his hope is that we have a clarity on our large d desperation. Psalm 60 says this, You have shown your people desperate times. You have given us wine that makes us stagger. This this psalm is very interesting because it's very uh, telling about a God that would allow us to feel small d desperation throughout our lives. You see, the problem even with teaching this this morning that Jesus meets us in our desperation is not a claim that Jesus is going to fix all the things you feel desperate about in your life. What it is saying, though, is God is going to allow any small d desperation necessary for us to have a clarity about our large d desperation, about our spiritual condition, about our lostness, about our need for a God to save us from our dark hearts, our sin, to spare us from his wrath. Old Testament is filled with this. That's why you see the people of God, in fact, a a, a good Jew would not even speak the name of God for such an awe and reverence and such an understanding of that desperate need for him. I think sometimes we, we so quickly go through Christmas, we're saying Frank send this when there's a different meaning to that word. Sure, it's a silent night and a holy night and Jesus in a manger and a little baby, No, no, no. That was the red rope let down from heaven to save a desperate world. It is with this I want to push us into the text this morning in Mark chapter 5. And I want to paint this picture and help you understand the desperation in these two people that we're going to see this morning. Again, Jesus is doing miracles around the Galilean area. He's 
this large body of water and he now moves more towards the western side and he goes to a city, Capernaum. Capernaum is a, a shoreline city. Uh, it's still, you could still see it today in Israel. But Jesus is going to move there and again, as we see throughout the, the Gospels, people are going to follow Jesus. He's doing great stuff. He's meeting the small d desperation needs of a culture. Man, he's healing people. You know, he, he's fixing stuff. And so I don't know if even people get why they're following totally, other than he seems to be answering the needs. And so what's interesting here is in verse 22, it says one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, and he pleads earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Just a couple thoughts here. I want to give you a picture of a synagogue leader. Synagogue started uh, out of one of the exiles. That means Jerusalem and Israel were conquered several times. And when they were conquered, the people, which is typical in wartime, especially in ancient culture, they would take all the people out of that place and then have them be slaves but intermarry. And, and that's where we, some, we somehow get into the Samaritan culture. But in that, the Jews in their exile created synagogues. And the synagogues were like buildings that would have remnants and things that would allow them to remember the God they worshipped. So you would have a synagogue ruler who would read from the Torah. You would have that they would keep the place intact, but they would be the one. It was like a spiritual uh, place, but it also it fed people. There was a lot of interesting things about the synagogue that are very powerful. But they would appoint synagogue rulers. Now, by the time we get here in the New Testament, they're super powerful. The, the synagogue rulers of the time were very much the authority about spirituality in Jerusalem at this point and in Israel. And they would, they would dispense, obviously, the Torah and read that, and you'd had two different perspectives about Jesus. Either they did not believe he was the Messiah, and so he is a good rabbi or a rebel, and we don't follow him. Or you had some that begin to say he was, and a lot of them did it in private for fear of being thrown out of their own synagogue. Now, synagogues had, rulers had a lot of power. They could say, I don't like what you believe, and you are no longer allowed to worship here, and would cast them out. Jarius believes something about Jesus, doesn't he? Jarius is, we could probably say, desperate. How many of us this morning, if we were to hear or know that your son or daughter is dying, you wouldn't feel a level of desperation. The only way I have a picture, and I've told this story probably many times, but I'm going to kind of fast forward to a moment in that story that I may not have shared. Some of you know we have four daughters. The third child, Haley, uh, had a brain tumor when she was five, we found out. And the, the quickness of that discovery and then getting us into a hospital in front of a surgeon, uh, a renowned surgeon in the West, having us sit down, I think it was on a Thursday, a Thursday morning appointment, and being very unsure about this surgery to take a golf ball-sized tumor out of her brain. And I remember Dr. Loudon talking to us and then 
finishing, and then I remember Trisha saying, I feel very comfortable about you doing this. And I could remember him vividly saying, oh, Mr. and Mrs. Murphy, wait. I'm confident in what I can do, but what I can't be confident in what Haley's body's going to do. We could lose your daughter in surgery. It's like, <gasps> desperation. That, that's, that's hands on the window. I, it doesn't matter my bank account. It doesn't matter about my education. It doesn't matter things I didn't fix at the house. It, none of that matters. There's, there's a moment of, <gasps> and, and I remember him saying that and then, then quickly saying, I'll check my appointments. Now, we knew he was months out. You could schedule him, but it was months out. And I remember thinking, and I, don't, I can't remember if we had that conversation in that moment, but, oh man, if we could lose her, then I would rather it be months down so we could enjoy her. Because what if? So he quickly comes back and says, this never happens. I can't believe this. Now, this is a Thursday. He says, I have a Tuesday appointment. And then it, then it really hit. Oh man, we, we could lose our daughter. We may only have four days left with her. Talk about the weight of desperation. I remember saying to this doctor, I said, well, we'll let you do this. I, I'm so much like Peter myself, but I said, we'll let you do this as long as I can grab the hands of the, the surgeons and we can... I can pray for the God that's going to get us through this, you know. And, and so we did. And I remember letting Haley fall asleep as she held my hand and walking out. That probably for me, and I would say probably Trish too, is for us probably the biggest picture of desperation. That, that feeling of that, that feeling of the, the, the chance that you might it's the hands against the window. Jarius feels this. He pleads with Jesus. He's a synagogue ruler of a picture of power, and he's pleading, and he falls at his feet. Did you sing that this morning? Fall on your knees. Hear the angels, because they're doing it too. I mean, we don't think that way about Christmas, that this little child is... We're to fall on our knees because of the desperation that we needed this Messiah. Jarius is at this point, and he's, ple- he's hearing that Jesus is in town, and so he rushes to him. Well, verse 24 pushes us into another person that's entered into this narrative story, and it's a woman, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and spent all she had, but it just grew worse. Now I want to just give a picture. Uh, I know this, this is a little bit graphic, but it's biblical. How's that? Um, in Leviticus, God institutes Levitical law. If you want to look in Leviticus, it's, it's very clear about women when they, they're menstruating in that time of the month. And there is a whole process about being unclean and purifying them. So I didn't make the rules, so I apologize for it, but oh, there you go. Uh, those women would have to go into another place because whatever they touched was unclean during that time. 
If they sat on furniture, it was unclean. Everything was unclean, and so they were separated from people, from culture for, it was seven days. Then they had bring a burnt offering, and it was repurified. Now, interesting note, I said this at the first service, and I think this is important. Our elders are working through this discussion, and so is our lead team. I just discovered this. This seven day that God sets up is similar to when we ask people who are rebelliously living in sin to separate from the community for a while. I thought that was very fascinating. Fascinating picture of just that it's, it's not to keep them out, but to go through a process of repurifying their life. Very interesting. So after the purification, they would come back and all was well. But what are we reading here? This woman, it's not once a month. It's nonstop for 12 years. What does that mean? She couldn't go to church, the synagogue, for 12 years. She couldn't be around people for 12 years. She couldn't touch people for 12 years. She was a complete outcast. Not only that, any financial well-being that she might have had was gone because she tried it on every fix possible. You've been there, right? Family members have been there trying to get well and use whatever they can to new methods of curing whatever it is. She spent all her money. Not only that, it got worse. And then medically, let's just say physically what's going on out there. If, If there's a loss of blood like that in a person's life, man or woman, the depletion physically for her body. She had to be very weak and frail. Talk about hands in the window, right? Desperation, emotionally, relationally, socially, financially, religiously. She's, she is on the out. I mean, both these pictures are not really good pictures, are they? They're both pictures of desperation. So she hears Jesus is there in town, and so she touches his cloak. And she thought, if I could just touch his cloak. First point here is that Jesus meets those in power and the powerless. What I find very interesting is that the narrative here, Jesus, who doesn't do any of this by mistake, it's a man in power religiously. It's probably one of the biggest pictures of power in that culture and time. And he selects a woman in that time and culture, would be the least looked at. And not only that, a woman that was unclean. Talk about power and powerlessness. Talk about the, the tension of those two different postures. And yet, Jesus meets both. No matter where you're at this morning, Jesus meets all of us, no matter where we're at in these places. The story continues and says that she touches his cloak and it has this interesting kind of superhero moment because uh, the power had gone out of him. Did you read that? Jesus realized the power got up. Whoa. Uh, Who touched my clothes? And his question, but wait, you're like Jesus, right? You're like the son of God. Don't you already know who touched your clothes? And so 31, I love some of the, the writings in Scripture of like these just vulnerable human moments that they include this. This had to be Peter. 31, uh, 
Jesus, that's like a dumb thing to ask because there's a whole crowd around you. What do you mean who touched you? People are touching you nonstop. But Jesus kept looking. It says that the woman, knowing that she had, uh, what had happened to her, she came and what? Fell at his feet. You know, desperation, in those moments that we have felt it, puts us on our knees. It bends us at the knee. Trembling with fear, she tells the whole truth. And so Jesus says, go in peace, be freed from your suffering. This had to be a moment. Could you imagine touching, boom, 12 years made clean. Now just, if you're good students, you just listen to this whole thing about unclean. What does it mean that Jesus was just touched by her? What does that make Jesus? Unclean. Well, hold on to that thought. Jesus' healing is for his glory and your capital D, desperation. You know, Jesus... Healing and meeting the needs of small d desperation has more to do with not fixing the small d desperation, but making very real to you your spiritual condition. Therefore, it's important to understand that I believe God will allow whatever small d desperation necessary for us to experience and understand capital D desperation. Romans, for all have sinned and fall short of his glory. All. The, the weight and the distance of, of that desperation, we sometimes just make, Frank sent this, and don't dig deeper. We, we quickly move over that. David Platt said this, I, I just listened to a, one of his messages that just struck me, but I love this quote, God wills to work with those, or work through willing intercessors who plead for God's glory to fill the earth. God loves when we call on his name. God loves when we plead for him to intercede. And I, and I will say God will answer, and sometimes it's not going to be fixing your small d desperation. I'd love to say this morning that if everybody that comes to Jesus and says, meet my small d desperation, he's going to do exactly what you want. I can't say that this morning. I can say that he is going to work a good work in you. I could say that he's going to work all things for his glory. I can say that when you put your hope in him, in the end, your large d desperation will be made very clear. God wills to work through willing intercessors who plead for God's glory to fill the earth. How do you pray when you're in desperation? I mean, what do you pray when hands are pressed against the window? God, just get me out of this, and I promise, you know, I won't ice fish during Sunday services. You know, I promise I won't leave church early during a Packer game, right? Or is it God, no matter what happens in this, may your name be glorified. Whatever. 
might I be a vessel. This is the words you hear from so many in the Bible that are talking about his name is glorified. If I have to die for his name, I will. See how quickly we can pass through Christmas. A baby, a manger, cool, wise men, awesome. So verse 35, Jesus is still speaking, and then the news. The news. This had to be a shocking moment, not only for the crowd, but especially for Jairus. Your daughter's dead. After I had held hands with the surgeons and Haley fell asleep and her body went limp, I remember exiting out there and just just feeling I was crying, I was just emotional. I went into a waiting room of tons of people. I can sit here, I can stand here today and tell you, I, I can't tell you how ner- that, that was my worst nightmare right there. If a doctor was to walk through the door and go, she's dead. Could you imagine that moment for Jarius? And so the, the line, why bother him anymore? She's dead. Move on. But Jesus says this, don't be afraid, just believe. When they came to the home of this synagogue leader, they saw this commotion and everybody crying and wailing loudly. And have you ever been that in those pictures, those moments? You've been in those, right? Where it's just grief and mourning and the loss. I've been to enough funerals in our own family, but just around you guys, your worlds, and, and all the things that we've lost here at Community and just the mourning. And Jesus, wildest commotion and wailing. That had to be a confusing moment for everybody. Imagine walking in and saying, why, why, why is this all happening? She's, she's asleep. It, it almost would have made you angry, don't you think? What are you doing to us? Quit, quit playing with our minds. So he kicks them all out, and he goes in where the child is. But Jesus knows perfectly well that his timing is perfect for our faith development. You know, Jesus does this a couple times. He does this with Lazarus. We know that he waits. I mean, Jesus could have rushed over. Jesus could have healed this daughter right there on the spot. He did it. Roman centurion. Healed. No, but he waits. Why? Because his timing is perfect for what? Our faith development. What does he say? Just believe. You ever thought that when your hands are against the window in the small de-desperation of your life, God is trying to awaken the faith, the hope that you have that goes so far beyond just saving you, but removing you from the depravity of your lostness and hell-bound way, my way, that God is saying, I, I have this figured out. I have the right timing. It's not only going to save you, it's going to, it's going to have a ripple effect to the world. So he takes this little girl by the hand, and as you read, he says, little girl, get up. And immediately she stands up and begins to walk. And they were astonished. This had to be, again, an amazing thing to watch unfold. 
someone coming to life. I can imagine the doctors in the room, those, those scientists, those there had to be a medical reason. Maybe, maybe she wasn't asleep. I mean, maybe she wasn't dead. Maybe she was just sleeping. Maybe there was something going on. Maybe there's a reason for this. But that room was blown away. Jesus meets our needs to grow our faith. He not only has perfect timing for our faith, he also meets them because he wants to grow us. To expand the dimension of our trust and hope in him. Have you ever thought some of the desperation, the small de-desperation we go, are going through is for a later time? We're going to need to learn how to hold on. Psalms 142, 6 says, Listen to my cry, for I'm in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Listen to my cry, for I'm in desperate need. I felt a little bit overwhelmed, and I'm prepping also for, for Christmas Eve services. But I listened to this message this week and felt an overwhelming sense of guilt and shame that I've, I think, sometimes said, Frank sent this, and there's so much more. And I don't know if I viewed appropriately that this small child is nothing small that it's, it's rescuing me from my depravity. It's removing me from my desperation of being lost without this God that's with us. So when's the last time you felt desperate? Not small d desperate. Large d. When's the last time you felt a desperation because of the lostness of your soul. Danan's going to come out and, and lead us in this response song saying, I need you. L Lord, I need you. And can I encourage you this morning, please do not take communion as a trite or trivial tradition. But this morning, maybe you approach communion very differently. Weighing the desperation that we have without him. Can you feel the silent night? People had been waiting hundreds of years for the one that would save. We've been celebrating this for how many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And can we forget the weight? Can we forget the, the weight of our own desperation? We take communion today for a God that would send his son and seeing that desperation and he would have him murdered. I found interesting hearing another pastor this week but saying that we wear crosses. Isn't it odd? We wear a symbol of the most brutal, torturing device in world history. Isn't that interesting? We wear that. 
we, we put it up. Why? Because it is the greatest love sacrifice. It was what was necessary for your and I, our desperation. We wear that because that is the hope. And he defeats death. And so when you take that bread and cup, it's not quickly a tradition and you're not punching a card. You are proclaiming your desperation for this God. I'm even going to encourage you in worship to kneel as you see fit. But friends, don't even sing this song unless you're ready to sing of the amazing need we have for him. Father, will you, us as a church, prepare our hearts this Christmas season to feel the amazing desperation we have without you and the amazing love gift you gave us in your son Jesus, marking his birth but then his life, death, and resurrection, a powerful gift of love to a desperate world. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.